0: Our gracious Father, we are thankful to you for giving us your word, and before we can begin to study it and to hear from you in the pages of scripture, we must ask your blessing upon our time, and that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide. Help us to understand the truth, that we might be sanctified by it, and it is our cry that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth, and we gladly bow the knee before it and pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to it. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. John chapter 16. Turn to John chapter 16. We'll read together verse 23 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to be looking today at verses 29 through 33. John chapter 16, beginning of verse 23. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask the Father in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now, you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. One of the ways that John demonstrates to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, namely that he is God in human flesh, one of the ways that John evidences that to us is by showing us periodically in his gospel the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he knows all things, that he could read the hearts of men. In fact, John began that theme early in his gospel back at the end of chapter 2 when he writes of Jesus in Jerusalem Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That is a statement from John's perspective of the omniscience of Jesus. Though many people in Jerusalem believed upon him when they saw the signs, that is, their belief was a fake belief, a belief in him because of the works that he did, but it was not a genuine belief. And so John says, though they were entrusting themselves to Jesus because of the signs, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that inside of their hearts it was not a genuine faith. It was not a real belief in him for salvation. It was a belief in him because of the signs, the most shallow and uncommitted of all beliefs or faiths. And Jesus knows the hearts of men. And then this is something that is evidenced again and again throughout John's gospel. He continually reminds us of how Jesus knew the hearts of men. He knew the thoughts of men. He knew the intentions of people's hearts. And this is evidenced over and over again. Back in chapter 1, do you remember, and I'm not going to give you every example of this because they're too numerous to, to recount to you. We would spend our whole time just reviewing John's gospel. But back in chapter 1, when Jesus first saw one of his disciples, Nathaniel. Jesus saw him coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael came then to understand that this is the Christ. This is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Because of his omniscience, because he knew Nathaniel before he ever met Nathaniel. He could read the hearts and the minds of people. We saw that with Nicodemus, did we not? When Nicodemus came to Jesus, Jesus knew exactly what his spiritual condition was and addressed the spiritual issues that Nicodemus had, almost as if he could read Nicodemus's heart like it was an open book. And then we saw it with the woman at the well. Jesus not only knew the condition of her heart and whether she believed or didn't believe, but he also knew her entire moral history. He knew how many husbands she had. He knew who her husbands had been. He knew that she was now living with a man who was not her husband. And he knew exactly what he needed to do and what he needed to say to bring her to a point of seeing her sin and being convicted and coming to believe that he was the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. And then he went into the village and he knew the men and women in the village. And the woman, her confession to the villagers after she left Jesus was, come see a man who told me all things that I had ever done. He read people's hearts like it was an open book. And we see this over and over again in John. We see it in the upper room discourse. In John chapter 14, Jesus knew the hearts of the disciples in verse 1, when he said to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. He knew they were anxious. John chapter 14, verse 27, he said it again, do not let your hearts be troubled. John chapter sixteen verse six. Jesus said to them, "I know that sorrow has filled your heart." He read the motives, the minds, the hearts, the minds of people so thoroughly, so convincingly that when people were confronted by that, they had to come to the conclusion that this was a man. He spoke like no other man spoke. He 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 knows things that no human being could possibly know. He is the omniscient Son of God. That's one of the things that John, one of the ways in which John seeks to show us that Jesus is God in human flesh, that He is omniscient, and He could read our the hearts of men as if they were an open book right before him. And that omniscience in John's gospel is coupled with his sovereign control over all of the events that he foreknows. So we see, for instance, John Jesus describing in his own language the sacrifice that he would give, looking forward to events that would come to pass, and he would tell them things before they ever happened. And say to them, I'm telling you this so that when this happens, you will believe, you will understand who I am, you will, you will know that I foretold this to you, and you would believe upon him as the Son of God. So it is his omniscience coupled with his sovereign control over all of the events and the people which he foreknows and he knows intimately, those two things together are evidence of his deity, that he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. And we see those two things coming together in this passage that we just read together at the end of the supper room discourse. Now, this is the conclusion to the farewell discourse, and it ends on a note of triumph in verse thirty three with the promise of peace because he has overcome the world. Last week, we looked at three promises that Jesus gives to them at the end of this uh at the end of this discourse. These three promises are repeated from previously in the discourse: the promise of answered prayer, a fuller understanding, and the father's love and Today we're looking at three more features here. And in verses 29 through verse 33. And we're going to see here the profession of faith by the disciples in verses 29 and 30. A prediction of, this, of their failure, verses 31 and 32, and then a promise of peace. Uh, he, Jesus understood the hearts of all men and he shows them that he understands even the weak profession of faith. So let's look at the profession of faith beginning in verses 29 and 30. Read verse 29 with me again. His disciples said, lo, now you're speaking plainly and you're not using a figure of speech. What are they referring to? The plain speech. Likely verse 28, where Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I remember last week we saw how Jesus promised them that a time would come when he would not speak to them in figures of speech, cryptic sayings, mysterious things, but would tell them plainly of the Father. That was the promise of fuller understanding. And now when he gives this bold, very clear, unambiguous, non-cryptic, it's not mysterious at all, a very straightforward explanation of his mission, verse 28, they said, now you're speaking to us plainly. Not speaking of women and birth pains, he's not using figures of speech like vine and branches and all of that type of a metaphor. Now he just says to them plainly in verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I come forth from the Father into the world. I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. That is as plain, as simple, as clear, and as straightforward language as he could possibly hope to say. And now the disciples are saying, Lo, now you're speaking to us plainly. We understand this. And because they understood this, that He came from the Father and that He was going back to the Father, they give this confession or profession of their faith in verse 30. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now we know that you know all things. What is the word that we use to describe somebody who knows all things? It's the word omniscience. This is one of the incommunicable attributes of div- of divinity, of deity, and incommunicable attributes. A communicable attribute is an attribute that you get, it is communicated to you. In other words, it is an attribute that we share because we're made in the image of God. God has attributes that we share, love, a sense of justice, ability to relate, things like those are attributes of God which we share, communicable attributes. There are attributes of God which we do not share, incommunicable attributes, the, uh, the attributes that he has that make him, that he uniquely has that makes him deity. Things like omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence and immutability that he never changes. Those are the incommunicable attributes. Omniscience is an incommunicable incommunicable attribute of deity. If I said it enough times, I was eventually going to mess that up. It's the incommunicable attribute of deity. That is an attribute which God has that only God has and he does not communicate with others or share with others. Angels are not omniscient. Angels are a different created uh, being than we are. We're not of the same nature. Angels are not created in the image of God. But angels are not omniscient. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it is, Peter speaks of the angels looking into the things pertaining to salvation. They study these things out. Angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. Just because they're heavenly beings doesn't mean they're omniscient. Jesus knows what things? All things. What are the disciples saying here? This he is omniscient. Now we know that you are omniscient. One who comes from God the Father into this world and returns from this world to God the Father, that is one who must share the very nature of God himself. And that is what the disciples are confessing. Now we know that you know all things. By that, they mean we know that you are omniscient. And in even making that statement, the disciples here, even with that weak profession of faith are confessing that Jesus Christ is of the same nature as the Father, that he knows all things. It's not an overstatement or a hyperbole or something that they know wasn't true, but they're just trying to flatter him. It's nothing like that. When some of my kids were younger, they used to say to me, after they would ask me a question, they would say to me, oh, Dad, my dad knows everything. Now, I say that not because I want you to think that I'm really smart, it's no accomplishment to wow a seven-year-old with your knowledge. If you can't wow a seven-year-old with your knowledge, then you need to you need to hit the books. And wowing a seven-year-old is not a Nobel Peace Prize level accomplishment. Though considering who they give Nobel Peace Prizes today, I guess it would be an accomplishment of that order. But it's not a grand accomplishment. But my kids would say that, and yet they would know that I didn't know everything. right? But they would say this as a way of expressing, wow, we are impressed with your knowledge. That's not what the disciples are saying here. They're not overstating it. In this context, when Jesus says, I have come forth from the Father, I'm going back to the Father, when they say, we know that you know all things, they are confessing to him, we know that you are omniscient, one who comes from the Father and returns to the Father. Omniscience. Now, omniscience is not knowing everything that can be known. Several months ago, it was over a year ago now, I think, um, we ran a series of articles in the church newsletter on openness theology, open theism. And that is the belief that God does not know perfectly the future. Um, There are many open theists, even today, it's not a big, uh, a widespread cult or a widespread belief, but it's prominent enough that um, it is a danger and it is the belief that God knows everything that can be known. So when an open theist describes omniscience, they're describing God knowing everything that can be known. And they're saying there are certain things that God cannot know because all of us are free creatures. And we all make hundreds or thousands of free will decisions each and every day. All of us, millions of people making millions of decisions each and every day. This creates a a, a slew of contingencies that no being can foresee, even God himself. And so God knows everything that can be known. But there are all kinds of things that might happen that you might choose to do this afternoon, which God cannot foresee. And therefore, he does not know. That's openness theism and openness theism. And it gets its name from the idea that the future is open to God. It's not a closed book. It's not settled. God doesn't know it, and He doesn't know the future infallibly. It's all an open book to Him. God rolls His dice, He moves His mice, and He hopes for the best possible outcome. Well, that is not omniscience. That's not truly omniscience. And when they confess that Jesus knows all things, they are confessing that He is indeed God in human flesh, because only God can know all things. That's omniscience. Now notice that the disciples do not say to Him, now we know what you're saying, or now we understand what you're saying. Notice they didn't say that after speaking to them in cryptic language and them asking him questions. They didn't fully understand that. But notice that they don't say, oh, now we understand what you're saying. You're speaking plainly. They don't do that because I believe that the disciples, even at this moment, were still aware that there was a lot of things of which they were not aware. They knew enough to know that they didn't know all of these things. So they don't say to Jesus, now we understand what you're saying. Instead, they say, now we understand that you know everything. In other words, I may not know everything, but I know one who does know everything. That's their confession. And it is a confession related to not their level of understanding, but Jesus' nature as one who comes from the Father, that he is omniscient. Now some of you are critically thinking and you're saying, but weren't there times when Jesus did not know certain things? Aren't there times in the Gospels when Jesus didn't know things? For instance, he didn't know the day of his return? When he are walking through the crowd of people and the lady with the hemorrhage of blood touched him, he turned around and he said, who touched me? It seems that he didn't know at that point who touched him. Aren't there times when Jesus didn't know certain things? So how do we reconcile evidences in the Gospels of his limited knowledge as well as evidences in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, of his unlimited or infinite and omniscient knowledge, that he knows everything? How do we reconcile those two things? This is the mystery of the incarnation, that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have two natures. He is fully God and he is fully man. And so sometimes we look in the Gospels at the Lord Jesus Christ and we see attributes or elements of his deity clearly on display. And we say this one is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. And other times we look at the person of Christ from a bit of a different perspective and we see that this is one whose omniscience was self-limited. This is the self-emptying or the self limiting nature of the incarnation that the divine son which he took upon himself human flesh did not lose his omniscience he still had it but he limited the use and the access to that omniscient bank of knowledge for the purpose of accomplishing the father's redemptive plan so in the redemptive plan of god there was a reason why the son should be limited at times in his knowledge and so he was there are times when he willed not to remember something don't you wish you could do that all the things you want to remember you don't All the things that you want to know, you don't. And the things that you don't want to know, those are the things that pop up and you wish you couldn't remember them or think of them at all. With the Lord Jesus Christ in his self-emptying, there were times when he could access or not access that divine knowledge, that omniscience. And so John is able to say, and the disciples are able to say, he is omniscient. He knows all things. And yet, at the very same time, this one who knows all things limited his own knowledge for the sake of sympathizing with us in our limitations and weaknesses and accomplishing the redemptive plan of God in the incarnation. That is how we harmonize those two things. So does Jesus know all things? Yes and no. And it's not that he couldn't remember certain things, it's that he willed not to remember certain things so that he might know the limitations of humanity and truly sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And so they are able to say in verse 30, we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. What do they mean by that? You have no need for anyone to question you. It's kind of a bit of a, a difficult phrase to understand. There's two possible meanings that I would suggest to you. It might be that what they mean by that is since we know that you know all things, we've come to this conclusion that you are the Christ, the Son of God, you're omniscient, you're one with the Father. And we know that, so we don't even need to ask you or question you concerning who you are or what your nature is. That might be what they're saying. We know that you know all things, and so we don't even need to ask you who you are because we have come to know this. We're not even questioning that anymore. That might be what they're saying. Or, likewise, they might be saying that you know all things and you reveal to us that knowledge before we even have a chance to ask you. We don't even need to ask the question. And you give us the answer. And we see this oftentimes in the Gospels, do we not? While the disciples are talking amongst themselves or while they are thinking thoughts in their head, Jesus says to them something that addresses the very thing that they are thinking in their head. Almost before they even know what it is that they are thinking, Jesus answers the very question that they are just getting ready to ask. That was an evidence of his omniscience. So when he says, we know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to ask you, it might be that what they're saying is, because you know everything, you reveal to us your knowledge even before we have a chance, before we can even formulate the question on our lips, you answer it. And that is an evidence of his, of his omniscience. At every turn, the omniscience or the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ of the hearts and the minds of men was an evidence of his deity. At every turn, an evidence of his deity. And that's exactly how the disciples understood it. Um notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that profession when they say, oh, you're omniscient. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, hold on, wait a second, wait a second, you got me all wrong. I'm not omniscient after all. He doesn't reprove the disciples for that profession of faith whatsoever. Instead, he, he boldly embraces it and gives them an evidence of his omniscience uh, later on in this passage. All right. The, understand also that this is an, a, a profession of faith and a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as one who is omniscient and has the attributes of deity, it is that faith that saves. It is that faith that saves. It is not belief in Jesus Christ as an avatar or an emanation from God or a, a good teacher or a nice rabbi or a good man. None of that type of faith is able to save. This is the essence of saving profession of faith. We have come to believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, one with the Father, the divine son. In fact, that's what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 24. Unless you believe that I am, and he takes the name of God from Exodus 3.14, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Every other faith in Christ as any other person or being is an inadequate faith that cannot and will not save. It is only belief in Christ as the divine son of God in human flesh come to redeem man as one who came from the father and returned back to the father one who knows all things, one who is all-powerful, one who is omnipresent, one who is unchangeable and immutable, that faith is the faith that saves. So that is the disciples' bold profession of faith. Now, look, on the heels of that bold profession of faith, look at Jesus' prediction of their failure. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? As translated as a question the NASB, some translators and some Greek scholars suggest that it is not actually a question, that it can be understood as an affirmation, You do now believe. And saying to them, and affirming their belief, not questioning it, do you really believe? But affirming their belief. But then look how Jesus tempers the the, uh, bold profession of faith in verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. On the heels of such a bold profession of faith, and such a confident assertion of their belief in Christ, here he tempers it with a prediction of their failure. An hour is coming for each of you to be scattered to his own home. Now, you and I understand what that refers to. That refers to the prophecy back in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, where Zechariah predicts that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. Matthew mentions that prediction. In fact, Matthew is the one who gives us the most detail of what happened right there. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And he's quoting Matthew there and Jesus there is quoting from Zechariah 13, verse 7, where Zechariah writes, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And then Matthew uh, recounts the fulfillment of that of that prophecy. Matthew chapter 26, verses 55 and 56 At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That's Matthew 26. and That was the fulfillment. Now, interestingly, John doesn't record the fulfillment. We give the prophecy here in this verse. But John doesn't record the fulfillment of that prophecy. The disciples actually fled. If you read through, read through the rest of the Gospel of John, chapter 18, 19, 20, and 21, you will see that there is no reference to that being fulfilled. And it is almost as if one of two things is true. John is aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and what they record regarding the um, regarding the fleeing of the disciples and the abandonment of the disciples, and he writes to his audience knowing that his audience is aware of those Gospels as well. In other words, this may be an indication that John was aware of the other three Gospels when he wrote his own, since he records the prediction but doesn't record the fulfillment. Or it might be that John just uh, means for us to, to uh, understand or to see in this that Jesus predicted something and John doesn't even need to record the fulfillment of it. The fact that he predicted it is evidence that it came to pass. And so John just leaves it at that. I think John was aware of the other three Gospels, and this is another one of those little textual evidences that John knew of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he could simply record the prophecy, and and we would all know this indeed happened exactly as it it did. The men were cowards on this very night. Uh, Notice that Jesus is is tempering their bold profession of faith with this prediction of their failure. We know that you know all things. Wow, what what a profession of their faith, their confidence, their knowledge of who he is, and yet we find out that it was a weak faith and that even within, even this night, within the hearts of the disciples, there was a root of unbelief that was still there. A small bit of lack of faith and lack of confidence, and as bold and sound and solid as this profession of their belief is, Jesus is not sugarcoating the reality and he is telling them, on this very night you are going to forsake me. This should be a reminder to us, friends, that you and I do not know our hearts nearly as well as we think we do. Isn't that the case? Don't we find that out to be true? We find it out to be true even here. The disciples, bold profession of faith, like Peter's, Lord, I will follow you and I will die if necessary. And what did Jesus say to that? Yeah, before dawn you're going to deny me three times. We think that we know how strong we are. We think that we know how bold we are. We think we know how confident we are in our strength and our ability to stand but we need to be reminded time and again, time and again, that we need to have pressed upon us the reminder that we do not know our hearts as well as we think we do, and we need to never trust what we think our hearts are telling us. Because we never know how weak we are. We do not know our own weaknesses, and we never know until we are in the moment of trial what, will we, what we will do in that moment of trial. Now, that should cause every one of us strike fear in all of our hearts. Right? I can't trust my heart. What? I can't trust my heart? Exactly. You can't trust your heart. Though that might be bad news to you at first, keep this in mind, though you are not nearly aware of your weaknesses as you should be, you are much more secure than you ever can imagine that you are. Not because of your strength, but because of what Christ has done, the fact that he secures his sheep. So here the disciples are coming to an understanding, or Jesus revealing to the disciples, how weak their faith really was. It is a true faith, it is a genuine faith, it is one built on rock-solid revelation, and it is a saving confession of belief. But... Boy, these men were weak. They were weak that night. And Jesus reveals that he knows the future. And Jesus reveals again that he knows their hearts by saying to them these things. Before this night is up, you're all going to be scattered, each to your own home. And he is evidencing there not only that he knows the, the strength of their faith and the content of their heart, but that he also knows the events that were going to unfold yet that night. It is amazing to me that Jesus was never flattered by the profession of faith, by the crowds or by the disciples. Do you notice that? Do you notice how realistic Jesus is? He's not taken aback. When they said to him, you know all things, he doesn't say, oh, come on, you're making me blush. You're making me blush. He's not flattered at all, not in the least, but he has a realistic understanding of their hearts, and he has a realistic understanding of their faith and their trust, and and he knows all things, and he is not taken aback by that. Just just like back in John chapter 6 when the crowds wanted to make him king, what did he do? He resisted it, and he walked away from it. Why? Because he knew the, the faulty belief of those in John chapter 6. Because he knows the hearts of all men, he is not in the least, uh, he does not place in the least, the least bit of, of false confidence in this man's profession of faith. But instead he it reads them like a book. You do understand this about me, it is true, you do know me, you do believe this, it is right, it is accurate, but listen, even with such a belief and even with such a proclamation, you men are going to flee and each go to your own home before this night is up, before the night is up. And we ought not to have any confidence at all in our own hearts, or, the, own, or the, the confidence of our own hearts, but realize how weak we are. Some people think that Christian maturity is, is growing strong in faith and then being confident in that and being bold in the strength and being aware of it and self-confident. That's not Christian maturity. You know what Christian maturity is? Christian maturity is understanding just how weak we are and never once thinking we are strong. It is the immature that thinks they are spiritually strong and has confidence in themselves. The more mature you grow in your Christian life, the less you trust yourself And your own heart, and the more aware you become of your own weaknesses, that's what creates Christian humility. Maturity is not confidence in my strength. Maturity is understanding of my weaknesses. And that never changes. The only thing that changes is you become more and more confident of just how weak and unable you are. That's Christian maturity. All right, so their bold profession of faith, Jesus' prediction of their failure, and now look in verse 33 at his promise of peace. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. These things refers, I think, to the entire discourse. It's not everything that Jesus taught. There were certain things in this discourse from chapter 14 to this closing verse of the discourse that are intended to bring peace to the the troubled hearts of the disciples. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's how the discourse begins. And throughout the discourse, we see the state of their troubled hearts, that they were worried and that they were anxious. And Jesus is saying, everything I've told you, chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to now, all of these things I am telling you so that in me you may have peace. And the intention of this entire discourse is to relieve their anxiety, to relieve their stress, to build their confidence in who he was, and to and to do away with all of the anxiety and the trouble in their hearts, that they might have peace. That was the goal of it. And this is not the first time that Jesus has mentioned the peace that he wants them to have. Chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And he is giving them all of this to strengthen them and to give them peace. In me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Now, does Jesus say in the world you may have tribulation? Did Jesus say in the world you might have tribulation? In the world there's a small possibility that you might not have your best life now. Is that what he is saying? They might have the, the smallest little bit of trouble here and there. Now, this is a statement of certainty. In this world, you will have tribulation. Paul, when he was on his first missionary journey, as he went back through the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, one of the things that Paul said to the churches to encourage them was, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That was his encouragement. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The path to the kingdom is a path marked out by tribulation and affliction and trials and difficulties and troubles. Man is born for trouble like the sparks fly upward. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And any message of the gospel that does not share to people the reality of the affliction that comes to the people of God is a false message. As Joel Osteen said when he was preaching on this passage, not nah, Joel Osteen never preached on this passage. It goes against your best life now philosophy, doesn't it? Is there any greater evidence of the fact that he is a false teacher than that every book he has ever written, every sermon he's ever preached, his entire life philosophy is the polar opposite of John 16:33, The polar opposite. In this world, you will have tribulation. And that's the promise. This is what you get by living in this world. Now, unbelievers have tribulation, don't they? Unbelievers have troubles and trials and difficulties. Unbelievers lose their jobs unbelievers lose their spouses unbelievers have to go through divorces unbelievers have stillborn children unbelievers have miscarriages unbelievers have a lot of the, all of the pains and afflictions that we also suffer as a as a result of living in this sin-cursed fallen world but there's more to that that the christians get we get all of that and the added blessing of persecution and hatred from the world the unbeliever gets the same difficulties that come from living in a sin-cursed fallen world where there's death and disease and trials and tribulations and troubles and the Christian gets added to that the persecutions and the afflictions and the hatreds, uh, hatred of the world and the world system and those who love darkness more than light. In this world, you will have tribulation. Do not expect that it's going to be otherwise. Now, if you end up living an easy life and things go well with you, if you end up living an easy life and, and you have this world's goods in abundance and, and you live a carefree life and you, you kind of things go well and you die at the end in peaceful death, then that is an added blessing. But the expectation of all people and God's people should be that in this world we are going to have tribulation. But take courage, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. What was his overcoming of the world? It was his death on the cross. At the very moment when the world thought it was seeing its ultimate triumph over the light, it was in fact its ultimate death knell to the world, the world system, and the prince of this world who was Satan. Now you understand why Jesus was marching headlong toward the cross, not trying to avoid it, not trying to skirt around it, not at all trying to dodge it, but instead going straight to the cross saying that I will die for my sheep, I will give my life for them, all that the Father gives me will come to me, I will die for them, I will gather them in, I will save them and secure them and sanctify them forever. That was his intention. He was going to the cross because that was the moment of his victory. And in the cross, he has overcome the world. He's overcome the world, the world system, unbelievers in the world. And in fact, because of what he has done on the cross, all of this world will be remade, regenerated, renewed, and given to the sons of God in full measure. And this is our inheritance, a new creation. And the entire world system has been vanquished because of what Christ did on the cross. And the entire world and eternity and joy, and blessing, and all of that has been given to the people of God. It was His victory. He has overcome the world. Notice here what the the disciples did. Notice here what happens in this passage. The disciples are promised that they would fail Him. And then what are they given? This promise of peace. You're going to fail, utterly fail. You're going to go to your own home. You're all going to flee. You're going to leave me. I'm not going to be left alone because the Father is with me. And even though you might fail, here's what I'm giving to you. I'm giving to you my peace and my victory over the world. All of these things are given to the very men who failed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is that not in, in miniature a picture of exactly what the gospel message is? That you have failed and I have failed and we have failed and that we cannot but he can and he does. That we are failures but he is victorious. And where we cannot earn salvation and where we cannot attain righteousness, where we cannot receive salvation in and of ourselves or by any of our own efforts or our own works, he comes in to do the very thing that we cannot do. In this world, we have tribulation, but he has overcome the world. And where we fail, he comes in and rescues us. And so we have this confidence that all of the grace and all of the blessing necessary to live in this world and to have peace in this world is given to us as a gift by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because in this world, we'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. Past tense. Do you notice that? Not I'm about to, not I'm going to, but so certain was his victory, so certain was what he was about to do that he could speak of it as if it was an already accomplished event because it was going to happen. He was going to go to the cross and secure the victory for all those who trust in him. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we are thankful to you for the victory that we do have over the world and the world system because of being in Christ. And it is all by your grace, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in saving us out of this world system and for the promises we have here that we can be at peace, we can have the peace of of Christ in us, dwelling in us, because of what your Son has done. Thank you that he has secured the victory. Thank you for securing for us all of that on our behalf. We are failures, we are inadequate, and we cannot do any of that on our own. And so we thank you for the glorious gospel, which promises us that where we have failed, Christ has been victorious, and he has fulfilled the will of the Father for us. Thank you in his name. Amen.